Hey, I'm Mike Joseph, and thank you for listening to Detoxicity, a show by men, about men, but for everyone. I hope you enjoy the content of this podcast, and I want to let you know about a few things you can do to support us and our mission to challenge traditional notions of masculinity and create a more communicative, positive, and loving environment for all. You can subscribe to Detoxicity on any podcast platform that you use to listen. We are available just about everywhere. Also, don't hesitate to rate and comment as these help us move up in the podcast rankings. I'm on social media, or at least I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok as Detox Pod Guy. Feel free to drop me a follow. Now I have a Patreon page, yay! And uh, Patreon gives you the opportunity to get cool merch and exclusive episodes of this podcast in exchange for subscribing. Go to patreon.com slash detoxicitypod to find out more. Uh, finally, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, whether you found an episode of the podcast particularly enjoyable or enlightening, or you know someone who'd be a great guest, or you'd like to offer constructive criticism, or if you yourself would like to be on the podcast, hit me up. Reach out to me at one of the aforementioned social media channels, or if you're old school like I am, drop me an email, detoxpod at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care. One cool thing about life is that you never know who's going to come into your life and who's going to bring other people into your life. Uh, This episode's guest is Noam Osband. I met Noam about six and a half years ago uh, through another friend. Uh, I was living in Boston at the time and about to move back to Brooklyn. And uh, some of my friends were nice enough to hook me up with people that they knew in Brooklyn that I'd be able to hang out with to make the transition a little bit easier. And uh, my friend Ezra connected me with Noam, and uh, we met. I came over to his place to watch a football game, and the rest is history. Uh, Unfortunately, Noam is no longer based in Brooklyn. He's now out west in San Francisco with his uh, partner and their two kids. Um, But we have maintained a relationship, and uh, he is a, a true eccentric. I think a lot of people... That was my phone, and I'm going to leave that in because I don't feel like we're recording it. Uh, a lot of people play play eccentric or play offbeat. They think it adds to their personality and it's not authentic. Uh, Noam is 100% an authentic person. Uh, our conversation goes all over the place. Um, he grew up Orthodox Jewish, which uh, obviously is not something that I'm familiar with. So I have a lot of questions about uh, how he saw the world growing up and how he has kind of adapted into uh, secular society. Um, we talk about his sort of pop culture references. We talk about raising his kids in, in the Castro, which is uh, where he lives in San Francisco, in a very uh, open-minded, uh, very sort of culturally divergent area. Uh, Noam also is a, a musician, a filmmaker, an anthropologist. Uh, he loves people, which I guess I share with him, but I also kind of hate people. So we talk about that as well. And it's it's just a great full conversation. And I hope that you enjoy it. Uh, here's Noam. Um, I'm Noam Osband. We met in New York through a mutual friend. I live in San Francisco. It's funny. It's like the obvious thing is to say what your job is, but then it's like, right, I hate that on some philosophical level. I am a musician and a radio producer. So I I work in the podcast industry and also a filmmaker. And these days I'm also a father of two young kids, which takes up a lot of time and is wonderful. And gosh, what are things that make me tick? Uh, I mean, I love people. Own, I, your, I love your people. Best, uh, yes, you do. 
I love people and that manifests itself in different ways, both in terms of what I do creatively, like getting people stories or I spend usually, I mean, hours every week, usually on the weekend, walking around, improvising songs for people in the park, handing out a card that I'm a troubadour. So I guess <laughs> I am a troubadour. Sometimes I say to people, thank you for using a union troubadour, but nobody realizes I'm being sarcastic. Right. Really. And that's what you got for being sarcastic, because I think that's a bad vice. And and it also impacts, I guess, how I raise my kids, because I definitely encourage them to interact with other people, but never force it. So no, no stranger danger on behalf of your children. No. I mean, the younger one's six months and change, so she's not interacting too much with strangers. The older one is two, they're exactly 18 months apart to the day. He is, oh, wow. yeah, June 7th and December 7th. Wow. And he is extroverted, which is in one way a, a true blessing. And then in other ways is just a wonderful preference. The blessing is he was born in June of the pandemic starting in March. Mm-hmm. So just a few months into it. And so for most of the first year of his life, he was touched by very few people and just didn't interact with many and he doesn't seem any the, the worse for it. I often take him with me when I play in the park. And so much that now often when I don't have him, people say to me, where's your kids? Or where's your kid? And often when we play, if the people seem friendly and if they sort of notice him, because they don't always notice I have a kid on my back, I'll ask him if he wants to give high fives and fist bumps. I'll be like, Zeb, I bet they know how to do good high fives. And then they'll do fist bumps. And then I'll sometimes say to him, do you want to play peekaboo? I bet they're really good at peekaboo. And he loves peekaboo. And then like last week we did it and it was great. I mean, there was like 20 people in their 20s who were like, you know, when he revealed his face, ah, and going nuts. And that was cool. And, and then I'll also ask if he wants to blow a kiss goodbye. And sometimes he does. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he milks it out. I think he'll be a performer. He seems like a performer because sometimes it seems like he's almost milking, giving high fives or he really draws out the blowing the kiss. And I won't love him any less if he's not. But of course, it'd be cool if he was. So. Kids love attention. <laughs> he does. And he loves attention. And people, he's a cute two-year-old. So people give that attention. Oh, but what I was going to say is somebody who loves people, something which I, I seem to have missed out on in the before times, as I've been told, you'd maybe have a child on the bus and people would come over and be like, oh, can I talk to your child? Or just would come over and goo-goo at the, at the kid. And to be fair, I'm sure that actually is something which pissed off a lot of parents who wanted personal space. Sure. So that's good for them. But for me, who just loves pathologically interacting with people, that would have been like really fun. We don't take them on public transport still and be people interact, I think, a little bit less. I mean, it still happens sometimes. Every now and then he's on my back and I'll have somebody get very close to him. Well, occasionally like, is it all right if I uh, touch him? One time somebody didn't even ask me and she wasn't, I mean, she wasn't touching him problematically, but. Still a uh, no-no. It was odd. I've only been wigged out or had people do things where I was like, that was one of them. But it it wasn't long, so it was okay. I didn't want to give the person grief, but I definitely thought, shouldn't do that. Twice there have been people (laughs) in the playground who I don't think had kids. We live across the street from a playground that we go to all the time. It's a busy playground. But if somebody wants to be in the playground with no kids, nobody's going to say anything to them. Right. Uh, Or maybe a 
somebody else would. In a country full of guns, I definitely feel hesitant to ever say anything to anybody. Sure. But once there was a man who was there with an electric radio-controlled car, kids seemed to be loving it. We were there for a while, and as time went on, me and my partner, Devorah, we were like, I, I don't think there's actually any kid he's here with. But that was less creepy than the other one, which is a guy who was there by himself. And he must have seen me because I walk around the park loudly singing, I'll sing about anything in the world for a dollar. (laughs) And then he was like, oh, can you sing me a song? And I was like, sure. What do you want a song about? And he said, sing about kids. Which in some ways, singing about kids in a playground seems like it should be the most natural thing. But no, gosh, it was so creepy. I sang very quickly. And then he once or twice told me what a beautiful child I had. And uh, it definitely, in two years and plus of being a parent, is the only person who my kids were around and I thought, oh, you're really creepy. You're problematically creepy. In fact, San Francisco has a lot of people on the street who seem to be in crisis. Mm -hmm. And it's important to me, I, I once worked in a prison and I remember a relative of one of the members of Belle Biv DeVoe was an inmate. And I remember him being homeless and just talking about the loneliness of people just not interacting with you. And I'm sure that is horrible and then compounds things. And so I want to like if somebody comes over and says hello, even if they don't necessarily appear to be completely mentally healthy. I think especially if Zeb is around, (laughs) I think it's like important for for me to model that you still talk to people. But when you walk around as a troubadour in the park and there's a lot of people in the city with mental distress, people see you and they notice you. And he was somebody who was once talking to me about his knife. And I remember thinking, I don't know if that's true or not, but it definitely felt violent. Sure. He came over a few weeks later and I remember thinking, I don't want Zeb to see that we walk away. At the time we had our dog who barked a lot and he started approaching the dog and the dog was barking and then he was getting agitated that the dog was barking. And then Devora is walking back from work and she comes to the park where we often meet and she sees her child and dog. I mean, I'm there, but at that point he's kind of yelling at us and I'm slowly starting to back away. And then she gets there and then he got very aggressive and they ran and I, I backed away and it ended fine, I guess, but also creepy. Yes. Yeah. Sometimes there are things where I feel like I'm very not progressive, and then there are things where I feel like sometimes I am. I don't know if this counts as progressive, but I love it when we walk by, and I like Zeb being exposed to people walking around. We live right near the Castro, people walking around with close to nothing on. There's never anybody who's full naked. They uh, sometimes have like a little something on the tip of their penis, which to be <laughs> fair, in some ways, there's something even more sexual about covering the tip because then it's like you're not just saying, oh, the body is. Right, you're drawing attention to something specific. Yeah, but every time we walk by, I think I want Zeb to see that and be like, this is the world. Yeah, as Americans, I think we grow up with a level of body negativity and sexualizing the body as a whole that is super unhealthy. Yeah, I think that's completely true. But it never even occurred to me that people would be on a playground that don't have kids. Like I don't have kids and I don't remember the last time I was on a playground and I don't, I love going to dog parks. Right. But I'll stand outside the dog park. I won't go in because I don't have a dog. So the (laughs) idea of going to a kid's playground and not having kids is just completely foreign to me. I never paid attention to playgrounds either before I became a parent, which seems probably what most people do. And then 
if you are a parent, they're a vital part of the urban infrastructure because it's a place where your kid can go and run around. So A, it makes you think about like, where are they? How are they? But also, <laughs> this is not funny when, when you're presented with something and you're like, oh, the world is a creepier place than I realized. Case in point, we had a dog who we loved. But he was not meant to live with people and in a house with a nanny share. And then when we had a second kid, it was just a lot. And we decided to try to rehome him. And we reached out to Muttville, which is a geriatric dog shelter in San Francisco that has the world's cutest logo, which is a elderly dog with a beard and a cane. And they're like, we could take him back and find him a new home. But the catch was... Devora wanted to be able to get updates just every now and then and see how he's doing. Right. Uh, and they're like, well, we can't do that, which makes sense. So I'm like, well, we'll go to Craigslist and next door. We're not just going to give him to anybody. People will respond and, and we'll find him a, a home where he can do well. Right. I put an ad up for, for free because I'm not going to charge anybody. And what I didn't realize is Craigslist will take down ads if a dog is listed for free. And I got a lot of messages on Nextdoor because the worry is if you're into torturing animals, you'll just look for free dogs. Oh. I never would have fucking guessed that in a million years. I had so many messages from people, man. I was that fucking dude on a Nextdoor thread. Like, please take the ad down, blah, blah, blah. We found him a perfect home, a person who lives on her own, a teacher of Marin County who has an Instagram for him and he is getting more attention than we could possibly give him. And it worked out well, but the moral of the story is you can't give pets away for free on Craigslist because the world never is occurred fucking crazy. I never would have guessed that in a million years. All right, here's something that deals with men or at least with penises. I never realized until my late 30s I'll give you two things. One was in my early 30s. I never realized that when I was urinating, I was always clenching my butt and pushing it out as fast as I could. And I remember I was peeing with my friend, Rich, and we were peeing outside and he made some comment about, you just turn on the spigot and it just goes. Right. Right. I never fucking knew because nobody teaches you how to pee. <laughs> Right? I mean, it blew my mind and probably has been healthier for me. I had no clue that was the case. But also a wonderful joy to discover. Just as mind-blowing was in my late 30s watching an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, and there's a oh, whole boy. bit about peeing by lowering your zipper and then putting your penis out of the flap of your, your underwear pants. and peeing... Right. Yeah. I, I didn't even realize that that was a thing. And I, I don't fully drop trow at a urinal, but I definitely, I butt my pants and pull down my zipper. And I always just assume the reason that like your underwear has a flap is just a ventilation. Although in hindsight, it doesn't really <laughs> ventilate it. Right. And then for like a solid month, I would be talking about it with stranger. Oddly, a good topic with strangers at a bar because oh, it doesn't make what did people say to you? More people than a few were like me and did not realize. Okay, so now you're going to notice this when you go to urinals, which is 
there are plenty of people who do both. Interesting. Um, the first time this ever happened was at age 16. And cross-dressing is not my bag, but I always love just like putting on my mom, I, bra and like, coming downstairs is a, a joke, right? It was comedy, like drag or whatever. And sure. likewise, lipstick. I didn't do it often, but once in a blue moon as a joke. I can't even remember even when I would do it, but I never did it and then hung out by myself. It was always a performative thing. And I remember being 16 and being in the locker room and saying to the guys, do you remember when you were a kid and sometimes as a joke, you'd put on your mom's undergarments or come downstairs with her lipstick on and people being like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Me, and me just assuming everybody did that. And I remember just being like, mind blown. Like, I guess not. People don't do that. I mean, I'm sure some people do do that, but I don't think that's the norm. I had assumed it was everybody. Wow. Without knowing anything about you as a child, you must have been a very interesting child. My mother was like, you were a very curious three-year-old. It's very funny because now we have a very complicated relationship. Right. But she'd be like, when you were a three-year-old, you were my favorite of the children when they were three. I think in some ways being a three-year-old and questioning convention was probably easier than a 13-year-old. Right, because but that's I, what three-year-olds do. Yeah. And also, you're never going to do it about anything that's transgressive to them. I have a letter somewhere on a box of memorabilia. When I was 24, I was teaching in a high school, and I ran an after-school poetry club. It was a school in Arkansas, and then Oof. we raised money and did a trip with the whole poetry club to Boston and New York. It was a good trip. And I got a donation from my pre-K teacher. I don't know how they heard about it, but they were like, you were a delightful K kid who would share his ideas with anybody who is within view. You're such an extrovert. And I'm just curious if you have any conscious idea of where that comes from. I, I do, but I, I'll say this. It took me a long time to be comfortable in my own skin. Okay. And for the longest time, being perceived of as eccentric drove me crazy. Freshman year of college was like miserably depressing. I should have been seeing a shrink and or taking medication. I would often go to sleep and be like, I do not want to wake up. Um, mm. And part of it was I had a hard time meeting people because I think I perceived myself as like weird. I did undergrad at Harvard. The only people I knew going into were people who I'd gone to school with, my Jewish day school, K through 12. And so I, there I could be myself and let my freak flag fly and it didn't bother me, but I was so self-conscious of being perceived of as weird by others and ate so many meals alone freshman year. And really it wasn't until the last year of college that I started making both more friends and just being more comfortable in my own skin. And then when I moved to Arkansas for a few years after, would it really then like put myself out there and sometimes I would just drive by myself to an event the Hall of Fame induction for the National Bird Dog Museum, which I wanted to see, which it's a museum dedicated to hunting dogs. And so the Hall of Fame has both people and dogs. So they induct dogs too. And there's like oil paintings of dogs. It's cool. I've actually been to the Hall of Fame ceremony twice. So it took wow. me a while to be comfortable meeting strangers. And now it's in some ways my favorite thing. And, and yeah. But I would say, just going back to how did I become comfortable with that is I had a dad who was very extroverted and would also say within reason outrageous things at the table and could be transgressive in his own way was a devoutly religious man. But within that world, 
would do things that were acceptably transgressive. Hmm. And well, he wasn't a performer, but he would always run the school auction. And it was like a stand-up performance. And I, every year, my mom would end up getting angry at him because he'd say something that everybody laughed at. And he'd be like, oh, I can see Barbara in the back. She's not going to be happy about me saying this. And so in many ways, he was a model of, of extroversion. But I was comfortable being weird in my own world, right? So being a, a Jewish-like, I didn't really know non-Jews till I got to college. But in that world, I felt comfortable. Senior year of high school, we didn't have a prom. So the time when we would put on tuxes and take pictures was going to the school fundraising dinner that had separate sex dancing. And that was just what seniors did because you couldn't have mixed dancing. And everybody wore a black tux and I rented a white tux with tails and a cane and a white hat and white shoes and white gloves because I felt comfortable. I was like in a purple vest. Yeah, um, buddy. Yeah, it was great. Oh my God. My parents and my mom especially hated it because <laughs> they would be there too. And they were like respected members of the community. Right. My but child was I, embarrassing me. Exactly. But it was great. It was fun. <laughs> I've only a couple times worn formal wear with a cane and it's fun. A cane is a great pop on a dance floor. I mean, you wouldn't want to use it the whole time, but it's... Right. You can do your little, like, Gene Kelly or Fred Astaire. Yeah. yeah. I think at some level, the extroversion is innate. I mean, I, I guess it'll be interesting to see with my kids, but obviously I won't know. To what degree is extroversion nature or nurture? I mean, obviously right. I'm going around telling him to like, give high fives to strangers or being like, <laughs> I bet they give really good high fives. And then right. he always does it. I, I'm curious about your upbringing and what it must have been like to get out of high school and go to college and suddenly be faced with this larger world out there. Because it sounds like you grew up in a very segregated community. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I did karate classes that had non-Jews, but I was not friends with anybody in it. I grew up right outside of Boston in Brookline. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like growing up in Williamsburg. I definitely felt very other. But I felt also very American and you'd watch Saved by the Bell and it'd be like, this is not my world. Right. I can't relate to what I am seeing on the screen, but my world is people who watch Saved by the Bell after school, right? Like in some ways, <laughs> very culturally white American right. of the 80s and 90s. And I should say before going to college, I did a, a gap year in a Jewish seminary in the West Bank affiliated with the Israeli army, which feels in some ways more hardcore than it was. That uh, sounds hardcore. Size, yeah. That was not, not the best place for me. And I spent countless hours with a guy, Yoni, who's still one of my best friends. That's how I got into fish. <laughs> we listened to fish and played backgammon. So then starting college, and I remember they had a talk about stuff dealing with sexual ethics, which in the late 90s, the biggest takeaway was like, if somebody's drunk, you can't sure. up for them is rape, right? Like, sure. obviously there's nothing about cons consent in that conversation. But I had never been in a place before where there was any discussion about anything like that. There were just little things that blew my mind. Like I kept kosher for the first two years of college. Mm -hmm. So there was a fridge that had shitty microwavable meals and whatever. And I remember walking into the dining room to go to that fridge to get whatever shitty food was there and seeing a sign that the regular dining hall was serving one of the entrees was vegetarian lasagna. Okay. And I had only eaten vegetarian lasagnas because you didn't have milk and meat together. 
And I, I, I distinctly remember seeing that and thinking like, well, that's superfluous. It's lasagna. Of course it's vegetarian. And then discovering that that's not superfluous. It's not the case. And yeah. I've never thought about that before. Obviously you're not interacting with people on a regular basis who are not Jewish. You're not interacting necessarily with pop culture in a way that doesn't come from that perspective. There's got to be a lot of stuff in your late teens and your early 20s where you were just like, holy shit, this is a thing that I can do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I felt very tuned into pop culture. I've always been like super into following it. I would have been very familiar with the acts at the 1996 MTV Movie Awards or whatever. I'm trying to think what are like faux pas I had with people who like weren't Jewish or stuff. I can remember the first time I danced with like a member of the opposite sex. I mean, that was just notable to me, right? Even though I'm pretty straight, it took me years to be comfortable dancing with women and dancing with men is what I'd done my whole life. And so that was different. But as sheltered as my upbringing was, I college didn't seem like a culture shock was I moved then to like, when I taught high school in Arkansas, it was a predominantly black area that was low income and monolithically, I mean, it was the Bible Belt. Right. I mean, I wanted to go there. I grew up in Brookline, which is upper class white and very Jewish. And the Mississippi Delta is not. And I lived in a town called Helena for two years. And like, I, I think I was not introduced so much to the world of economic diversity at Harvard. I guess you'd notice in some ways there were some students who would work for like cleaning stuff or, or I guess I worked at school too, but like, but even then um, it's relative. I mean, the lowest income person going to Harvard is still probably an upper middle class person unless they've got a scholarship. Yeah. Listen, it is not an economically diverse place. There's probably some percentage. And now I think it's like, if your folks make under a hundred or 150, you get a free ride, which is amazing. Right. To think about like, that's the limit. But this is all to say, to me, the thing that was genuinely culture shock and being like, oh, now I'm living in a fucking different place was Arkansas. So it's like before school starts, a week of meetings, and it opened with a prayer. I mean, I should say, after being there, I definitely have some sympathy to people who want school prayer. And I mean, the shame of it is the people who want it the most aren't going to be the ones who are down with a non-Christian praying. But of course. It, it gave me an understanding of it's just like rooted in the culture. Like everything else is starting with a prayer. How are you not going to start school, which is the most important thing? And I guess I now I've spent a lot of time in Arkansas. It gives me feelings about that or an understanding. Also, like I remember them talking about kids not being allowed to play games of chance in the classroom and I guess cracking down. I mean, shit, there was there was corporal punishment in those schools. That was just so different. But also living in Arkansas was the first time I'd ever been in a room where I'm the only white person in a room. Right. And that just felt so much more different to me. And that was in some ways my first exposure to really living in a completely different place. Yeah. You know, if, I grew up in an upper class suburb. Right. I yeah. I mean, never, I, I'm familiar with Brookline. Okay. So it wasn't until I remember very well, my mom picking me up from the airport coming home for Thanksgiving, my first year teaching down there. And it was the first time ever driving around my neighborhood and being like, these houses are really nice. Like Cambridge also has it. So that was a window into something. Yeah. I mean, I think it's good to have that, that culture shock in a way, just to kind of even things out 
for oh, you yeah. to understand that that the world works differently in some places for some people. Oh yeah, I guess I'm still mostly in majority white spaces, but I think it's important, right? When you feel like an other or like being in a foreign country where I can't speak the language at all, it's good to know what that impotence feels like in a world where English is a dominant language, where there's signs for English in airports everywhere. Yeah. yeah. You are raising your kids in a much different environment than the one that you grew up in. I'm assuming that is by design. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's funny, right? Because I think some of the way in which you'll raise them will be reactions, right, to how I was raised. I feel more adamant than Devorah does even about sending him to public school. I mean, public school is going to be obviously like pretty not diverse. So I guess we're thinking living in West Philly, right? Where at the very least it'd be more diverse than any school environment we went to. And who the heck knows, but I sometimes think I would be more comfortable being around that in school. It just has a real a value to me where I think like, even if a school wasn't necessarily the greatest school, he'll be exposed to lots of education in other settings. But yeah, I really hope we don't send him to private school. I realize I have some say over that. He will be definitely not raised by parents who tell him God is real. Although I think we'd present it as like, there's some people who believe in a God and you can, if you want to. Yeah. I can't imagine pushing him really being like college is definitely what you should do as opposed to like, it's something you can do. It's a very good option. In my head, I just think I'm going to be like, just do something interesting with your time. Just like, who gives a fuck something what makes is, you happy. Like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. We do say often that like, the two things we care about or the three things we care about are that they're happy, healthy, and kind. And then after that, we just don't give a fuck. I think that's yeah, a, a good idea for living. Yeah, right. So, so far, the first two seem to come true. And Zeb is pretty good at please and thank you. Although he does poke his sister, Dahlia, <laughs> in the face well, maybe every other day. The annoying big brother is going to have to be the annoying big brother. Yeah. Yeah. And to his credit, I don't think he's always trying to be annoying. Sometimes I think he just doesn't realize. Yeah. Sometimes I just think he doesn't realize her own frailty coupled with his own strength. Mm. But it's actually very sweet. He's become in the last month very affectionate to her and uh, loves talking about her or giving her kisses or, or he... Yeah, it's very nice to see. He definitely... Well, as a baby becomes more... I, I'm probably going to say something incredibly insensitive. For the first couple of months, babies aren't... They're still trying to turn into people. They don't have distinct personalities or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, once a kid can interact, like it can smile at you and respond to you, whether you're a kid or you're an adult, then it kind of becomes more real. Like, this is a personality that I can interact with. Yeah. I definitely felt weird because I did not have what some people describe of like, as soon as you have your kid, it's just like you give your life up for it. And I, I guess I needed a little interactivity for me to be fully emotionally connected in the way that I thought I would. And I don't know how common it like that, that, ha like that that's normal, but it definitely not have like that immediate. Yeah. Yeah. But it, it definitely was just, discombobulating. My dad passed 20 years ago and I found this letter. He was clearly writing like he had cancer for two years. 
And uh, at some point in those years, he was clearly writing a letter that he never finished and gave us, which was meant to be a letter to his children. And it's very sweet. And he talks about my sister was the first. And the first time he held her, immediately having that feeling like I give up my life for you. And, and yeah, feeling that with each of them. And my dad was a pediatrician. I, I bet he did feel that way. I think all the time, actually. I mean, he was a a pediatric hematologist oncologist. So he was in the 70s doing shit with blood cancers when the survival rates for kids was like super low. So wow. I bet him holding a healthy kid must have felt great. And he was a very emotionally present man. So it definitely was just a discombobulating. And I definitely felt like guilty and like I was doing something wrong until I guess talking about it with my shrink and others and being like, oh, that's that's normal. It's not one size fits all. I, again, I have no really no place to speak here because I don't have children, but I can't imagine that like a baby, I mean, postpartum depression exists in totally. in all genders for, for a reason. And yeah. I don't know that there's necessarily, even if this person is carrying half of your DNA, that that bond is going to be there when it's a blob that can't make out your face and can't interact with you other than the screen that it needs something. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. But again, what do I know? One thing, and this kind of goes back to the fact that you love people as much as you do, is some of the best times that I've had with you have been at your gatherings because I have met some incredibly colorful people. I remember sitting in your apartment with nuns. Oh, yeah. Sister Sister Myra and Sister Letty. Yeah. Letizia. I have never been in the presence of nuns at any other point in the entire course of my 46 years on earth. So that, that will always that, stick out to me. Yeah, that meal had two nuns and there also was somebody there who sometimes does a, some version of sex work. So I definitely was like, well, this is a good diverse crowd. Oh, um, I think I, I vaguely remember that. Yeah, those nuns, those two in particular are really special, lovely people. I guess I love having friendships with people who are unexpected. I remember I became really good friends with the guy who was the substitute math teacher, but taught for a long time in the room next to me. When I taught high school in Arkansas, he was a black guy, a generation older than me. Mm-hmm. And we'd hang out after school. Uh, we both liked smoking pop. He was like a mentor of kinds. But I remember him saying one time, when we drive around together, everybody thinks we're either fucking or dealing drugs. <laughs> and he was right. And I did not realize that. Oh, yeah. One thing that I totally miss about COVID is I have not had any gatherings inside of my house. Sometimes I meet people. And I mean, I would do this in New York. I'd meet people and I'd be like, oh, you should come over for a meal. And sometimes they would. And then sometimes we'd become friends. Right. And when I lived in Arkansas, it was a small town. There was nothing to do at night. And so dinner gatherings were a real social activity because you didn't go out to a bar or anything right or a club or whatever yeah yeah i mean it it just did not exist and uh, i love doing that and uh, gosh when am i going to feel comfortable doing that i guess maybe when case rates go down i don't fucking know it's a crazy it's it's so hard to tell i've had a couple of gatherings in the last year and i tell everybody to test before they come over whether people do or not is remains to be seen but no one has gotten COVID from any of my indoor gatherings. So knock wood, I'm grateful for that. I, I think some of it is trusting your circle. Yeah. And some of it might just be luck. Have you had COVID? I have not had COVID. Oh, right on. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, well. me, me neither. I've had the fear of God put into me about it because I have a really good friend who had it and is now disabled from long COVID. Oh, no. I was acquainted with somebody who died from it, but in some ways that scared me less than this guy I'm friends with who used to be beyond energetic. And if there ever was a dance party, you'd want him there. And now walking up the stairs and like his heart flutters and it's like, oh God, we each have two kids. And I even sometimes think like, oh my God, being a parent and like having, I mean, last week I was holding one while pushing the stroller of the other up a hill. God bless. And I thought to myself, that would be really hard with COVID. It'd be rough, man. It's not something I want to get because I know multiple people who've died from it and also people who've lost their senses of smell for long periods of time or whatever. So it's like, I want to be cautious. But again, I also feel like, okay, I trust the majority of the people that I'm close to. And over the course of the past couple of years, my base of friends has been fairly consistent. So it's yeah. not like I'm meeting people and being like, oh, hey, come right over. But I'm yeah. saying, whereas I think if maybe this was 2018 or 2019 and I would meet somebody at a gathering and then be like, oh, hey, come over. I, I'm not doing that anywhere near as much. It's people that I trust. Yeah, it's, yeah somebody who really likes people. It's a bummer. What I hate is I don't share joints with strangers. I used to love if I was seeing fish or the old members of the dead, there's nothing better than you pack a bowl and then you offer it to the people around you and you all become friends. Right. Or sometimes I'll play for people in the park and they'll be like, oh, do you want to hit this? And I just, I don't. And so you um, just hand them an edible. <laughs> <laughs> I have had people do that. We're um, doing this the right way. Yeah. And it just stinks because those are socially constitutive bond making moments that are not there. Right. So, see, I'm also someone who likes people, but I think a big difference between you and I is that I hate people as much as I like people. <laughs> you have a very, I want to say, innocent or very wholesome approach to the way that you deal with people. I, well, I'll say this. A, You're open-hearted. I'm open-hearted. I harbor rage that I don't say to people. So there are plenty of people who in my head, or not individuals, but types of people or people who do this. And I was just talking to my shrink yesterday. I never say anything to other drivers that they can hear, but I do in my own car. Sure. And wanting to not do that, which got into a good conversation about me being self-centered. And I love therapy. And, <laughs> or I love my therapist. We all uh, love therapy here on the show. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm so happy I am not attracted to my therapist. I feel like if I had a, a female therapist, how would I not end up being attracted to telling her all my shit and her not getting angry or telling me I'm a shithead? I digress. It's interesting to think about who are people who you really couldn't be friends with. Mm -hmm. And I think the bar for me, I think that's in some ways where I guess what you say rings truest. Cause so I'm still in touch with a lot of high school friends and most of them are still religious and some of them live in the West Bank and I disagree entirely with their, or some live in the US and are big time Trump supporters. Mm. And I disagree with them. When I never used to judge people. I mean, I did not judge people really morally who voted for Romney or Bush. I might have disagreed, but I didn't think they were doing something ethically wrong. Right. Maybe that's a poor take. I mean, if somebody wants to tell me that George Bush was a war criminal and it's just as bad, if not worse, to have voted for him in 04, I'd buy that. I uh, mean, I think I'm 
with you on that, I don't think I realized it wasn't evil in a way that is so obvious now. Yeah, but also George Bush wasn't spreading verbal hate. I mean, he wasn't like right. he went to a mosque a few weeks after. Not, I mean, he, he's still sick to the FBI on like mosques in the U.S. But like, yeah, Trump is a different beast this way. Right. So uh, I don't know what that bar is. Anyways, I I have a very close friend, separate, who gives me a lot of shit for staying friends with those people, or is like, how could you possibly visit them in the West Bank? And an easy way to answer that, which is not untrue, is like, you know, to be fair, I think in our WhatsApp conversations, I probably expose some of these people. A lot of these people think issues about stuff with pronouns or anything like trans stuff. They have views I I strongly disagree with and probably rarely, if anyone, know anybody in their orbit who would be like, why does it bother you to call somebody what they would like to be called? Like, right. So, but I think that's a cop out to say that's why it's okay to stay friends with them. I just think that bar is really high for me. I don't I, think I've ever had a friend who I'm like, I can't stay friends with you. I don't know what they would have to do. Oh, I've had a bunch. <laughs> I mean, I think it's different for you and for me. I mean, would you be friends with somebody who was an anti Semite? The guy who was the substitute teacher next to me was an anti Semite. But it, it didn't come up often. And in some ways it was endearing. I remember him talking about the role Israel played in the 2004 tsunami in the Indian Ocean, which killed half a million people or a quarter of a million people. I mean, that was so almost endearing because it was so crazy. To be fair, I thought to myself, shit, if I grew up black in Chicago in the 60s, I might also right. hate Jews. Right. But there was something also where like we were friends, but I think also because he was a generation older, in the same way, like with your grandparents, I think... You, you cut them slack on saying shit that you might not with somebody who wasn't a grandparent. I'm trying to think, do I have any other friends who I think are anti-Semitic? Nobody who really says anything much to me. The church where I knew that nun, it was a Catholic church in Red Hook where I'd played in the band for a few mm-hmm. years. There were some people there who were anti-Semitic and I guess I held it against them. Like there was one guy, I, you know, sometimes just talk about the, like the Jews of me. There was something I didn't like the way he would talk about it. But the guy who was the priest in charge of the place would always describe me as being from Israel. And actually, he did it enough that I found it anti-Semitic. And I think I said something to him about it once, but I didn't tell him I found it anti-Semitic. I just was like, I'm not from Israel. I'm from Boston. And he kept doing it. And I never explained to him why I find that so problematic. But this is all to say, it's also easier perhaps for me to give a pass like that in a place where... I'm still part of the dominant majority. Right. Yeah. You are a cisgender heterosexual white guy. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I don't say that in this particular instance to to be derisive. I think it's important that more people like you stand up for the people who are not like you to the people that deny humanity to things that they don't understand. Yeah. So I think having you there saying... Yes, you should call people by their preferred pronouns. And yes, trans people exist. And yes, queer people exist. And yes, people of different religions and ethnicities exist. I think some of what allyship is about is about standing up for people when there is another group of people that's denying their humanity. Yeah. God, just thinking about that, this is how dystopian I feel about America is I (laughs) I went to get a California driver's license. Uh Uh-huh. 
And then I was outside the building and there was a man who was very aggressively talking to the woman he was with. And in her face, I mean, they knew each other, but it was in her face. And both me and another guy made eye contact. And eventually we walked over and was like, is everything okay? But I know I did. Definitely hesitated saying anything there because I think to myself, I wonder if you have a gun. Right. I find that interesting as well, just because of when and where I grew up. Like that has always been a part of my brain when you confront somebody. Yeah. And while I understand the idea that plenty of people have grown up in a time period where that's not an expectation, I had a gun pulled on me for the first time when I was 11. So it's kind of like having grown up in Brooklyn in the 80s and 90s, you kind of assume everybody has a gun. Yeah. So it's just a a kind of a different ball of wax there. But I think for a lot of people now, it, it... It really is an issue where even on the subway, sometimes when you see people just freeze when there's some kind of confrontation, people like, okay, do I want to take my life in my own hands right now? Yeah. Yeah. Getting back to having a gun pulled on you when you were 11, did that leave a lasting impact on you or some impact on you psychically? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I can't quantify what kind of impact, but it's something that I still think about to this day. Yeah. And anytime something gun related comes up, and a lot of times whenever people express incredulousness that it could happen in a particular place, it's like, yeah, I was walking home from seventh grade, broad daylight on a weekday, and was walking down Church Avenue, and some dude tried to stick me up. I mean, and I'm 11 years old. What 11 year old has any kind of money at all? I might have had like 50 cents, but put something against my stomach and I looked down and it was a fucking gun. Yeah. So that that shit will certainly have an effect on you. Yeah, I bet. Growing up the way you grew up and now having kids, is there anything about masculinity just as a general rule or as a general concept that you definitely do not want to carry into the next generation? There is very little of the gender binary I find valuable. So I think to myself, is there anything I want to teach my son that's important? We give blessings to our kids on Friday night. And traditionally in Judaism, you bless a a male child to be like Ephraim and Menashe, who are Jacob's grandchildren, the children of Joseph. And girls, you bless them to be like the four foremothers, Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, and Rachel. Okay. And one time I was not saying it seriously. I was like, Devorah, why don't we just say all of them for each of our kids? And then the next week she was like, yeah, you should do that. I think she took it as seriously. And it's like, yeah, sure. I mean, if anything, it's like, I almost question myself on it because I almost feel like I have a tendency to sometimes be black and white about things. Okay. And I do think like, uh, male kids are probably biologically going to be stronger on the aggregate. Is that any reason to like think about biological differences? Are there any messages then that should be different because of that? And I can't think of anything about the value system that I want them to have. Obviously there'll be different conversations that we'd have. Like obviously to the boy, there'll be conversations about the messages that you encounter as a male in American society and 
how to think about that. But I can't think that there's anything value-wise in terms of them being good people. Because there isn't. Because there isn't. Oh, I think, I mean, Orthodox Judaism is, I would argue, fairly misogynist. Yeah, Um, I mean, definitely patriarchal. It's definitely patriarchal. Gosh, this was very funny. Last week, as I was playing in the park, I played for some people. They said, sing a song about mosquitoes. And I was like, were you talking about mosquitoes? And they were like, oh, we all work with mosquitoes. And I was like, okay. And they all do stuff with like CRISPR gene editing. I've heard about this stuff. I've listened to like a podcast about it. Playing with genes. And then what you do is you end up having mosquitoes breed only males who don't bite. So it's a public health question in some ways. It's also like a little bit freaky to think about (laughs) fucking with this. And already some of the genetically modified mosquitoes have been released and controlled things and there are ongoing studies being done in different places in the US. So I've heard of this before. But we had a moment joking. And in fact, the song became about these people are trying to breed a mosquito patriarchy. And the song was all about <laughs> usually patriarchy is problematic, but in this case with mosquitoes, that's a good thing. And they laughed and, and, and it was good. It was better than the average song. So yeah, it's definitely patriarchal. One thing I love about you is that you're not afraid to ask questions. It's part of your curiosity, but also if you think something might be offensive or you're not sure what to say to somebody, more than most of my other friends in dealing with me, I've always felt like you've been like, is this okay? Yeah. Or so. I appreciate you saying that. I definitely have not always been that way. Therapy has been very helpful for me about appreciating that. Like, I love what's taboo. So I used to love at dinner parties, not trying to be provocative, but my head would be like, this is an interesting topic. So even if it's going to make people uncomfortable, that's okay, because it's an interesting topic. And it has taken me time to realize like, well, you might find it interesting. Maybe it even objectively is an interesting topic, but it's going to make some people uncomfortable. So you probably shouldn't talk about it. I'm not talking about like things about like talking about racism. I'm talking about like when I talk, school, you know, you taught in a a dying town that had almost nobody there in their 20s or 30s. You would have students who would dress provocatively sometimes, right? Sometimes, like, you would notice that, like, there are students who are, they're sexual beings. They're 17, 18. Like, you would would notice that. So to me, that was interesting that sometimes those would be the only people didn't fucking dare think of, of, of saying anything, doing anything. I think once I became a teacher, it became even more, like, judgmental of, like, Jesus Christ, (laughs) if you prey on students, that's really evil. So I would talk about it with other Teacher America teachers and they would all be uncomfortable because it's like, because what the fuck are you doing, Noam? But I remember talking about it with Brenda Williams, who was this African-American woman who taught two doors down from me. I remember her saying, Mr. Osband, they tell you they're not attracted to their students? They're lying. They're lying. <laughs> she was great. And so that's what I mean. I don't mean like bringing up difficult conversations that are valuable to bring up because... It's help. I mean, some of the world in hindsight, it's like, well, no, I probably shouldn't have talked about that. That is an interesting conversation, but you're going to just make everybody uncomfortable. I mean, and it's de- there, taking there's me a time dividing to- line there, though, right? I think there are a lot of things that make people uncomfortable that should be talked about more. Like, sure, I'm not going to go to a dinner party, or let's rewind that a little bit. I'm not going to host a dinner party and talk about fisting people. I do think that there's a way to be provocative, to be naturally curious in a way that some people might see as provocative. Like, I, I guess it's a difference between 
the provocative coming from a good place and a curious place versus provocative coming from an Andrew Dice Clay place. 100%. 100%. I think there's something about being male in a misogynist society where you feel more empowered to be outrageous than girls are taught to be, right? So, and I think sure. part of the process of getting older is being less like Andrew Dice Clay and more curious. <laughs> like that balance, because I definitely, I love shock value for shock value's sake. I'm looking in my room at, my, my partner is very talented in the fiber arts and we once worked together on silk screening t-shirts that have stick figures of a dog, one dog taking the other dog from behind. And it says, <laughs> make, and it says make Dolores Park great again. Oh God. And I sold them and they were red with white writing. And I love it because it's just bizarre and weird and people would laugh. And then I stopped selling them and wearing it because I realized from a distance, it wasn't obvious what it was. From a distance, you might think I have a make America great again, something. Mm. Uh, I don't need anybody having their day 1% right. dinged because they see that. So I love shock value, but getting older is the process of trying to also respect other people's lives. Yeah. You can be thoughtful and respectful about it. Totally. Totally. It so. just takes thought. Yes. Indeed. <laughs> Thank you, Noam, for being so giving of your time and your thoughts. Um, I hope that you as a listener enjoyed our uh, trip through the mind of Noam Osband. If you uh, want to get to know more about Noam, you can find him on Twitter and Instagram at Noam Osband, N-O-A-M-O-S-B-A-N-D. Also Google him. You can uh, see some of his film work and hear some of his music. And uh, if you happen to be in San Francisco and you see a guy walking around the park with a baby strapped to his back and a ukulele and a gigantic uh, curly afro then uh, that is probably noam and tell him that mike said hi thanks again noam i appreciate it thank you for listening to detoxicity i hope you found this particular episode interesting and if you are new i hope you go back and listen to all of the older episodes uh, once again my name is mike joseph i am the host and producer of this show and uh, there are a lot of things that you can do to continue to support our mission continue to support this podcast uh, follow me on social media i am on instagram twitter and i'm on tiktok as detox pod guy uh, you can also send me an email if you'd like. I'm at detoxpod at gmail.com. I am always on the hunt for people with interesting, inspirational, and powerful stories. So if you know somebody who fits that bill or if you yourself fit that bill, please don't hesitate to drop me a line via email or via social media. Uh, please make sure you subscribe on your podcast platform that you're listening to this on. Uh, rate, comment, help a brother out. Uh, help us move up in the rankings. Uh, follow me on social media. Like I said, uh, follow our Patreon or subscribe to my Patreon, actually. Patreon.com slash detoxicity pod you get access to exclusive episodes you get episodes a little earlier than the general public you get a cool ass sticker lots of stuff once again patreon.com slash detoxicity pod quick shout out to calvin williams for providing the music and uh doing his magic on the logo which was originally designed by jacob block i thank you all for listening i wish you all the best please take care of each other till next time peace <laughs>